This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. So Veronica and I were drawn to a similar piece of the narrative in today's Torah portion. I'm going to take you there very quickly because we've heard already the general narrative flow of Parshat Vayetze. After 20 years away from his family, it's time for Jacob to go back home. He's grown up now. He has four wives. He has many children. And he has amassed a real fortune in his time away, and he takes leave of Lavan. He escapes in the night, but Lavan, his father-in-law, pursues him, similarly to the way that the Egyptians will pursue the Israelites when they take leave of their enslavement in Egypt years later. But then something really strange occurs. Lavan catches up to Jacob after pursuing him for seven days and says to him, what have you done, Jacob? He says, Lama ganavta et Elohai. Why did you take my gods with you? Why did you take my idols? Now, Jacob responds to Lavan's accusation by saying, search my camp. I didn't take your idols. And, and, and even more so, anyone who is holding on to these stolen objects, these idols stolen from your home, let them die. Now, Lavan will go on to search Jacob's camp, and he'll do a pretty thorough search, but he will not find those idols because, as you may recall, Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife and Lavan's daughter, is sitting on them, and she refuses to get up. Eventually, these two camps depart from one another, but the story doesn't actually end there because what we're going to learn very soon in the Torah is that Rachel is in fact going to die. She's going to die a tragic, premature death. And and it's going to happen on the next stage of their journey on on their way home. We're going to read next week in in chapter 35, verse 30, that Rachel dies in childbirth. It's tragic. This is Jacob's beloved wife, the one who he's put himself into forced servitude to Lavan for many, many years in order to be with, and now she's dead. And it's doubly tragic because there's no way to read that story next week and not hear the echoes of this week. And Jacob's promise, lo yichiyah, whomever is holding your stolen idols, that person will not live. So what happened here? This seems like an unforced error. Why did Jacob make such a rash proclamation? We don't have a death penalty for stealing. So so this isn't even the proper punishment for theft of your father's idols. So throughout chapter 31 in this week's parsha, we see the repeated use of one word, ganav. Maybe you noticed it as we were reading. Ganav, which means theft or thief or stolen. Rachel stole the trafim, these idols. 
Jacob stole Lavan's heart. Why have you stolen my heart? Lavan asks. Why have you stolen my gods? You've stolen away by night and you've stolen the day. Now there is a literary technique that's used when looking at Torah that is the repetition of a word becoming a, a light vort. It signals a kind of theme in a passage. Lest you miss it, I'm going to repeat a word again and again and again, and it's up to us to ask, why is Torah repeating the word, the idea of theft, again and again in this story? Now, Shmuel Klitzner, who's a Bible scholar living in Jerusalem, he asks, what's the meaning of this light vort, of this repetition of the word ganav in this context? And he says that it must be connected to the stolen birthright and the stolen blessing in Jacob's earlier chapter in his life, both of which, Klitzner argues, have become definitional to Jacob and to his own sense of self. So you remember in his earlier years when Jacob was full of deception toward his brother and toward his father. Klitzner argues that this has left Jacob with a kind of perceived identity of himself as a thief. It's left him in a state of dissociation and dispossession. These acts of deception that, that Jacob took in his youth have become the very essence of who he is, or at least who he sees himself to be. And it seems like Jacob is fully identifying now with the theft of that blessing and that birthright, even after all these years. He just can't shake it. He thought he could escape it when he ran away from home. He marries Rachel. And, and do you remember what happens? He wakes up in the morning to realize that it wasn't actually Rachel at all, that it was Leah. And the Midrash tells us that he accuses Leah. How could you participate in this deception against me? And, and Leah, according to the, according to the Midrash and Bereshit Rabbah, she says, is there a teacher without a student? Is there a student without a teacher? You're the great deceiver. You're the thief. Don't accuse me of lying and cheating and stealing. Who are you? From that point forward, it, it just consumes Jacob. He tries to outrun the damage. He tries to be decent and he tries to be good. But even years later, 20 years have passed and Lavan comes to him with the repeated suggestion of theft and thievery. And that immediately triggers in Jacob the mindset of a thief. He believes even now that he's nothing more than the worst thing he ever did and the worst person he ever was. He's triggered by the accusation. He becomes reactive, guilty in his own eyes. And so he shouts out this proclamation, Lo Yechiah, I'm not a thief. Whoever's a thief's going to die. And as a result, his beloved Rachel dies. And I wonder if we're not a little bit like that too. Maybe some of you experienced this over Thanksgiving when you maybe went home to be with family. And all of a sudden, you're not the grown-up that you think of yourself as, but you're a 14-year-old kid who's trying to sneak out at night, and you can't shake your parents' perception of you, despite the ways that you've grown. I once talked to a beautiful man with a beautiful life. He had everything, but he was tortured he was tortured because he was consumed with the awareness that at his essence, he would always be the guy he was when he struggled most in his life, when he was flailing and he was failing and he was struggling and sinking. 
And no amount of evidence to the contrary could convince him that he was no longer that person. And I said to him, but what if you're just not that guy anymore? And he stared at me like I was crazy or stupid or just missing the point. Don't you see, he said, I will always be that person. Rev. Yosef Dov Soloveitchik teaches that there are two ways to walk on a pathway toward tshuva, toward transformation. One of them is to try to blot out the evil of our past. The goal is utter annihilation of our previous story. The problem with this is that there's nothing left to return to. This is erasure, disappearance, total disconnection with who you once were. But there's another way, not by annihilating evil or trying to disappear it, but by acknowledging it and then rectifying it and even elevating it. And this kind of repentance doesn't entail making a clean break with the past or obliterating our memories of the past. It allows a person to see that the past is part of our story, is part of what made us who we are. But it's not our whole story. It's not necessary to blot out the past. We don't have to pretend that it never happened because then we have nothing to build a foundation on. Instead, according to Rev Soloveitchik, what we are to do is to attach ourselves to the memory of what went wrong and then find within that memory, not shame, but a desire for holiness, a desire for healing, because there is a way to heal through acknowledging our mistakes, but it requires us to be willing to revisit the memories of those ways. And then he says to turn those memories into vessels for holiness. I know that we struggle with this. These are the kind of things people come to see their rabbis to talk about. I know we struggle with this as individuals, and I know that we struggle with this as a nation. I'm reading right now this incredible book by Clint Smith, who writes for The Atlantic, called How the Word is Passed. Has anyone come across this book yet? The, the main story is about his journey through the American South and then New York City and ultimately to Africa to try to learn and understand a different, a different version of history. And the question is, how do we tell history? What stories do we choose to tell? So, so at some point, he's in the Blanford Cemetery in Petersburg, Virginia, where there are 30,000 Confederate soldiers who are buried. It's one of the largest mass graves of Confederate servicemen in the South. And it's in this context that he thinks of Frederick Douglass, who wrote a passage in 1870 in which he said the following. Frederick Douglass said, we are sometimes asked in the name of patriotism to forget the merits of this fearful struggle, the Civil War, and to remember with equal admiration those who struck at the nation's life and those who struck to save it those who fought for slavery and those who fought for liberty and for justice. He said, I am no minister of malice. I wouldn't strike the fallen. I would not repel the repentant, the repentant. but may my right hand forget its cunning and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I forget the difference between the parties to that terrible, protracted and bloody conflict. And yet all around this cemetery, and all around the South, and even some places in the North, we see signs that call out to the glory of God in the memory of the sons who died for the Confederacy. 
We see reenactments celebrating Confederates in battle. Throughout the South, we see still to this day signs and symbols of the myth of the lost cause. You know the lost cause, the reconstructed history that in Smith's words tries to attempt to recast the Confederacy as something that was predicated on family and honor and heritage rather than on what it really was, which was a traitorous effort to extend and expand the bondage of black people in this country. According to Smith, he says the lost cause was not an accident. It wasn't a mistake that history stumbled into. It was a deliberate, multifaceted, multi-field effort that was predicated on both misremembering and obfuscating what the Confederacy stood for and the role that slavery played in shaping this country. It was an effort that started more than a century ago and an effort that persists to this day. I wonder if in our own minds, we fear that we as a country are defined by our worst moments. And I wonder if that's the reason that we're having so much trouble moving forward as a country. I wonder if that's the reason that some governor could give a rousing victory speech just a couple weeks ago, bragging that under his leadership, the state had embraced freedom and rejected woke ideology. I wonder if that's the reason that the crowd cheered when he said, we fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporation, and we will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where the woke goes to die. <sighs> I wonder if this is the reason why one of the two major parties in our country put up as a candidate for senator in a purple state, a man who objectively and observably is unfit to serve in any position of power. And even still, we will see this coming week that he will receive more than 70% of the vote of white people in that state. I wonder if this is the reason that there is a whole cultural movement against wokeism, because people would rather vote for and support candidates who simply have no right to be in positions of power than support people who want us all to confront the truth of our past, who believe that we collectively as Americans can actually be something better than our worst moments. I wonder if there, there's is the reason why there's an entire movement in our country about banning books for telling history and teaching and firing teachers for teaching history. Because as a nation, we fear that we really can't move beyond those worst moments. We fear that telling the truth, that speaking the history will only reinforce that we are fundamentally flawed and broken and illegitimate, just like we were in our very worst moments in our early childhood. And so instead, we'd rather just go to sleep, a great, big, deep, fake sleep. I often quote Jonathan Safran for, from his book, Eating Animals, when he said, while it's always possible to wake a person who's sleeping, no amount of noise will wake a person who is pretending to sleep. America would rather fake sleep. And in our sleep, we defy the kind of honest self-reflection, engagement with our past and our memories that would allow us to transform into who we can be. We build empires now 
Empires over a rotten core. We deny and we deflect and we diminish and we lie. We don't want to deal with the truth. But there is another way. There's another way that's not about dwelling in the misery of the sandcastle empire that we've built. It's about confronting the reality, about owning the reality, about insisting that there is another way. Now, this morning, Eric and I were looking at a comment from Aviva Zornberg, the great teacher of Torah, who, who points out so brilliantly that, that Yaakov, Jacob, when he leaves, he flees just as the sun is setting. And he's away for 20 years. And we're going to see in the very beginning of next week's Parsha, he comes home just as the sun is rising. And Aviva Zornberg says, this is the dark night of Jacob's soul. And that's hard to understand because in this dark night, he falls in love. He has four wives. He has lots of babies. But this is the dark night of his soul. Why is that? Because Jacob, in all of these years, with all of that love and all of those babies, fundamentally never grew out of the self-understanding that he was a thief and he was a deceiver. He did not believe there was another way for him to live. But Jacob is not that anymore. The end of Jacob's story, he's changed into a man. And as we're going to see in next week's parasha, he is a man who can lift his eyes and he can see his brother Asaph right before him and he can bow to the earth seven times and he can beg for forgiveness because he doesn't want to be defined anymore by who he was at his worst. And he can receive the embrace of his brother, the one he heard the most, and he can weep and then he can reconstitute himself and he can rise up and he can enter the next chapter of his life. He can use the memory of his sins not to be forever imprisoned by the past, but instead, as Soloveitchik wrote, to enhance his longings for holiness that were bursting forth from within him. He, like all of us, wants to be something better. He doesn't want anymore to be defined by the past. My fear for our nation is that we are imprisoned by our past, that we keep failing to see that it's in our hands to transform our reality. And we invest instead again and again in covering over the sins and building cheap monuments to a lie that dot the landscape of this country as if we can will away the truth. But Jacob found a way out. After so many years of believing that the die was cast, he realized that there is no way to cleanse the past without confronting it. He had to reconcile with Asaph. He needed this in order to survive. He had to birth himself into a new person, someone no longer defined by the worst of who he was, but someone who had grown from his bad behavior into the person that he now could be. May we too find a way to shed the worst parts of our own stories and our own identities, not by annihilating them or lying about them or pretending they did not happen, but by transforming them, by allowing something beautiful, something holy to grow from the wreckage. May we too find the will to build something new. Shabbat shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe and please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission. 
to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.